everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have a nurse manager with me. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> hey, Allison. Say hello to everyone. Hi, everyone. My name's Allison. Allison is not only a nurse manager. She's actually the first nurse manager that I worked for as a nurse, as a registered nurse. I worked before as a nurse assistant. But my very first job as a nurse out of nursing school, Allison gave that to me. And then she ran as fast as she could away from the hospital. From the hospital, not from you. (laughs) She was like, "Uh, I can't handle this girl. I got to go. I'm out. (laughs) But the great thing is she then turned around and got me an awesome job at the hospital she went to and I've been there ever since and I love it. So yeah, and it's been I've been there four years. So you've been there what three and a half just a few uh, really my four four year anniversary is coming up in November. So okay. So yeah, that was very quick because I left in July. Yeah, it's it all happened very quickly. I really appreciated that so much. And I'm so thankful to have the job that I have at the hospital that I have. So I owe a lot to you and I really appreciate you for wanting to come on the show. Well, I'm honored to be here. I have listened to all of your episodes and I love them. So it's this is exciting to me. This is very much outside of my box. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I'm really thankful that you have listened to them and that you're enjoying it. It's kind of one of those things where you know, you kind of put yourself out there doing something like this. So it's it's a little bit nerve wracking to know like people that I know that are listening, but especially like a manager at the hospital <laughs> where I work. I'm like, oh, Gary, what do I say? What am I saying? But anyway, I guess it's going okay. So I really appreciate all the positive feedback and, and you, of course, coming on the show. And we've got some pretty good stories to talk about today, I think. Yes, we do. So first of all, I wanted for our news story, I wanted to kind of recap the issue with the nurse in Nashville from Vanderbilt, the former Vanderbilt nurse who made the medication error that resulted in a patient death. And then she's has been charged with reckless homicide and neglect of an elderly person. So she had another hearing today, a discussion hearing. And I always try to go to those. So I drove over to Nashville this uh, last night and went to, to that this morning. So I, I like to kind of keep that in everybody's mind so everyone can can be thinking about it. And those of you who are not familiar with the the story. This is about Redonda Vaught. She is intensive care nurse. And in 2017, December of 2017, there was a, a patient who was admitted into Vanderbilt with a brain bleed. She was actually doing okay. And she was supposed to be going down for a PET scan. She got nervous, needed some kind of some medication to help her relax so she could go through the, the PET scan. Redonda was asked by that patient's nurse to go down and administer Versed. Redonda went to the Pixis machine and pulled out what she thought was Versed, went down to radiology where the scan was supposed to be taking place, administered it. Then after she administered the medication, she went on to the emergency room where she had some other another task. She was kind of a float type nurse. We don't have that that I know of where I work, but it's she's what was called a help-all nurse, and she just kind of goes wherever she's needed and all over the hospital. She had a, an orientee with her that day, so there were lots of distractions. She, When she thought she was pulling out Versed, she actually pulled out Vecaronium, which is a paralytic instead of a sedative. So when she administered it, it basically rendered her, the patient's muscles 
paralyzed and she wasn't able to move. She couldn't talk. She couldn't say that she was in distress and she couldn't breathe. So she died. Actually, she coded on the on the table and they they resuscitated her, but she never regained full consciousness and she was taken off life support, I think, a day or so later. So that was the horrible thing that happened. And there were lots of things that led up to that. But as bad as that is, her family did not believe that Redonda, the nurse, should be charged criminally for this. But the prosecutors decided to charge her with homicide, reckless homicide and the neglect of an elderly person. So it's been going on. They did this back in January of this year. So it was a year later. The Board of Nursing reviewed the case before she was arrested. They reviewed the whole case, did not pull her license. They didn't even suspend her. She Vanderbilt fired her, but she got another job at, at Centennial Medical Center, and she started working there as a bedside nurse, and she was working there all the way up until the point that she was arrested, and then they, I think she was suspended for a time, but she she's never lost her license. So that it's just a really horrible, horrible thing that happened to the patient. But as a another, I feel like another victim is the nurse who's been charged criminally for this. I don't know. How do you feel about it, Allison? Yeah, I don't really agree with the criminal charges. I think that we have safety measures in place to prevent things like this, but sometimes they still fail. And Mm -hmm. from what I have read, there were a couple of areas that this could have been caught and it wasn't. And I think Mm -hmm. that while she was the one that got the medicine from the cabinet and she was the one that pushed it into this patient's IV, I don't think that she is 100% solely responsible. You know, when you're given medicines like Versed, which is what was ordered, you have to know what you're doing. You have to know to monitor that patient. And, you know, I, I don't know if she was familiar with that drug. I don't know if she took the time to look it up. But we're all human and we all can make mistakes. I'm really happy that the facility we work at practices the just culture. And so I feel like we maybe have would have handled this differently. I feel like when we have had med errors, you know, and as a manager, if I have med errors and we've had med errors, they're handled a little bit differently. You know, we kind of look at it and say, was this reckless behavior or was this a process that caused this error? And sometimes it's reckless behavior. Sometimes it's a process. The facility that worked at previously, my very first day as a nurse manager, I don't even think I had the keys to my office yet. And my supervisor called and said that there had been a major med error the night before. And I mean, it was catastrophic. And so that situation was handled very differently than how I handle the situations now if one of the nurses on my unit makes a med error. Well, the thing that really bothers me the most about this is the fact that, well, I don't even know how to say which thing bothers me the most. I guess when when you obviously the loss of life is just the worst, the worst part of the whole situation. The loss of life is what is the most important thing not to ever lose sight of that. And then but then to for somehow the prosecutor to 
no one has explained this to them. I just don't feel like they could possibly understand that what she was doing, what she did, the things, the overriding. Because if you look at interviews that are in statements made by the the prosecutors, they've said that the reason that they're they decided to go forward with criminal charges is because she overrode a safety mechanism. So that's something that nurses at that hospital do routinely. And there are lots of nurses that are backing her up on this because it's just so commonplace. It's something that's done at hospitals all all over the country because it has to be, you have to have a way to override in certain situations. And this, at this particular facility, it's something that's just done. If you override all the time and that's just part of your everyday, all day procedures, how is that even a safety mechanism? Because it becomes, it's not even alert anymore. If everything, if everything is just override, 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 how is it supposed to make you stop and think, you know? Does that make sense? Yes, and it wouldn't. You would think it was just part of your normal routine. Where we work, I get a report anytime there is a medicine that is overrode from the Omnimed. It sends an Mm -hmm. email to me, and it gives me the medication. It gives me the nurse that pulled it out. And then they have to pick a reason for overriding that medicine. Mm -hmm. So I think that we keep a pretty good track of medicines that are overrode and you're always going to have those situations. You're going to have a code on the floor or you're going to have something happen where you need to get that medicine right then. So you do have to have the ability to override, Mm -hmm. but there also are protocols that should be in place. And one thing that I thought was interesting that I just read from what you sent me was that, you know, we use the scanning system. So we scan our meds, we scan the patient and we expect you to have a, a certain percentage. You have to have it like at least a 90% scan rate. And so um, that is part of something that I manage, you know. And so I run scan compliances. I post them so that way people can see what their percentages for their patients as well as for their medicines. And on what I was reading about Redonda's case is that she had asked the manager about scanning this medicine. And the manager was like, well, well, it'll pick it up on the MAR. It'll show up in a different color. But I never saw anywhere that she did scan this patient or scan this medicine. And unless they had computers and scanners and stuff in that department, which from what I have read, it doesn't look like they did. I don't know how she could have accomplished that. And so that would have been another stop mechanism that would have prevented this error. If there was, whether it be a cow or, you know, computer on wheels or uh, a handheld medication scanner that she could have scanned the patient and then scanned the drug. And, you know, that could have alerted her to say, oh, this is not on the patient's profile. This is not on their MAR. And Mm -hmm. that could have been another way possibly to prevent this from happening. But it doesn't sound like that was in place. No, in the area where she is, where this happened, they did not have the ability, the nurses did not have the ability to open up the patient's record. So you can't even do the five rights. Once you get down there, there's no verifying the five rights. You just have a patient 
and you have this, you can verify her name with her armband. But other than that, there's no, you don't have the order in front of you. So you can't verify that it's the right medication. You can't verify that it's, you can't verify really anything else. You can't really verify anything because you don't have even her name. <laughs> you have to basically remember that it's even the right person from a, the other from the floor. Does that make sense? She's, there's yeah. no way to verify it. Yes, that makes perfect sense because she can tell you that her name is, yeah, you know, Miss Sally, and mm-hmm. that might be right, and that might be the right yeah. armband, but that might not be the right patient that you're looking yeah. for. Yeah, you may have seen the her name at some point, but you're still going on your memory. You're not really verifying anything. There's no way to do it. You don't have a record there. You don't have a, and everything is computerized. So how it's okay. I don't understand how it's okay or how Vanderbilt is not responsible somehow in this because they have a patient in an area where it's expected for a nurse to give medicine and no way for the nurse to verify the five rights. It's just, she's expected to go down there, give the medicine, and hope that it, that it's right and verify it back up on the floor when the patient's not even there. Right. And she was also a help all nurse. So she mm-hmm. didn't have a personal relationship with this patient. Yeah. So, you know, had it been the primary nurse, she would have at least been like, oh, okay, well, I know what that patient looks like. Right. She didn't even know what that patient looked like. She was right. just delivering a medicine down there. Right. And she, when she pulled it out, of the Pixis machine, that was her, that was really the one opportunity that she had to make sure that 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 medicine was the right one she was pulling out. That was the the big mistake, obviously, of just picking that. She typed in VE for Versed and Becaronium came up. And when she pulled that out, somehow in her mind, she thought that was the right medicine. And I've seen people say on some of these forums and chat discussion groups and and that sort of thing. Some nurses, you know, most nurses have been very supportive. Some of them will say, I would never do that. I just don't think that any of us could ever say we would never do something because you just don't know if all of the circumstances fall just the right way and you're distracted in your mind. Sometimes, how how many times have you done something thinking, I cannot believe I did that? I just I would never have believed I would have done it if I didn't hadn't just done it and I feel like that's that's how she felt like she I'm sure could she's an ICU nurse she's an experienced nurse she's she's tasked with training other nurses I'm sure she would probably never thought she would do something like that yeah so. and I agree I don't think that any of us should make that statement I would never do that because mm-hmm. you don't know you could make a mistake we can all make mistakes. Yeah. And I just, I don't think that we should ever hold ourselves to that. I don't know what the word I want to use is, but we are all, we're just people. We're just human. And any one of us can make an error at any point in our career. We're not perfect. We should strive for perfection. Yeah. We should try to be perfect as much as we possibly can. Always try to do everything to the very best of your ability. Try to follow all the rules as much as you possibly can. That's obviously what the goal should be. But when things happen, we have to have an environment in which that we, we can look back and say, how did that happen? What can we change so that it doesn't happen again? Instead of an environment where I can't believe I just did that and I got to do whatever I can to hide it or else I'm going to be put in jail. Right. And I think that when you do 
create that environment, then people are less likely to speak up. Yeah. And it's funny that we're talking about this and these rules because I don't know if I ever told you this, but the reason I left the other facility was because I could not enforce their new rules that they had put in place. There was a policy where the first time you made a med error, it was, um, I think, an automatic written warning. And then the, the second time, and this didn't necessarily have to be a med error. This could be mislabeling of the wrong specimen. This could be putting the wrong telemetry strip in the wrong chart, but any kind of error like that. So your first time, automatic written warning. Your second time was termination. And as a manager, I did not feel in my heart that I could enforce that. And mm-hmm. I didn't feel good about that. And so that was a big red flag for me that I've I've got to get out of this because I can't go home and sleep at night knowing that I terminated somebody over a mistake that, that I could have made just as easily as they could have made. And yeah. so that was a huge, huge reason that I left that facility. And when I went to the new facility, you know, one of my, in my first few months there, I went to the Just Culture training and I was like, just blown away that there could be another way. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I just didn't understand why the old facility was so determined to just eliminate people when, mm-hmm. you know, we always hear there's a shortage of nurses and we can't get enough people to stay at the bedside and they're always going on to different roles. So why are we so trigger happy to get rid of them over yeah. a mistake instead of looking at what could have led to this? Is there something to do with our system or our processes that caused this error. Mm-hmm. And and we did have a, a pretty significant error on the floor that I work at recently. And it was involving insulin and insulin pins. And so what came of this was, you know, my nurses kind of brought it up. They talked to um, risk management. They talked to pharmacy. And the insulin pins, they didn't have this. The patient sticker was on the cap. But if the cap got disconnected from the pin, then how do you know what what patient's pin that is and you know people were pinning them up in the rooms and in the bag and then the barcode was on the bag not on the pin and so a new grad in orientation actually caught this error so kudos to her and then we looked at that process and so there have been changes put in place since this error occurred because yes it happened on the floor that I work on but it very easily could have happened anywhere. And it, mm-hmm. it could have happened in the past and nobody ever caught it. So those nurses, you know, we we did do some coaching. We did talk to them about you've got to verify the right patient, the right medicine, all that mm-hmm. stuff. But it wasn't, you know, we didn't terminate them. We didn't suspend them. You know, we, we looked at the process and we saw that there was flaws in the way we handled that medication. Right. Which that's, exactly what I would expect to happen. If I made a mistake like that, I would expect, I would expect my manager to talk to me about it. I would expect to be, I don't, I would not expect nothing to happen and everybody just act like, you know, no big deal. Oh, it's fine. And I don't think that this nurse would have ever said that either. I think that everyone understands that she made a mistake, but this whole thing of the criminal charges is way just so over the top and it just doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely senseless. And I I don't know what's going to happen. It seems like it's 
it keeps going on. It's it's now August. It's, she was arrested in January. It's crazy to me that it's not been resolved by this point. That some somehow the prosecution hasn't someone hasn't been able to explain to them that this is not that this doesn't make any sense. But right, and I think we're setting a really bad precedent. Yeah, for the future of all healthcare professionals, not just nurses, mm-hmm. but anybody that works in the healthcare field. I think that, you know, if she is convicted of this, I think that we are starting down a really slippery slope. Okay. And I think it'll it'll deter even more people from even going into the field because why would I want to go and be a healthcare provider, no matter what my role is, you know, if I make a mistake and I'm going to be charged with murder, right? I'm not interested in that. Yeah. And and to me, I feel like they could, if at any time a investigation is done, they could go back a year ago, two years ago, three years ago into some situation. And all of a sudden they're approaching you about something that a patient that passed away a few years ago that you don't even, you don't even remember. What happened? You don't even remember making a mistake, but they're just looking through the records going, well, you were taking care of this patient and this happened and then they passed away. And you're like, well, you can't even defend yourself because who knows? I feel like we all need to be really thinking about this and taking it very seriously because we're all at risk. If this goes forward and and this becomes, if it does set a precedent, what is going to happen? I don't know. It scares me, though. But I guess that's our that's our news story. We'll keep talking about it every time she has a a new hearing. I try to try to announce it. It's on Facebook, so I just try to let kind of keep it in everybody's minds, so everybody's thinking about it and thinking about her. So we have a bad nurse story, and this is actually a nurse practitioner. Well, she she eventually became a nurse practitioner from West Virginia. So this is the story of. Michelle Michael, who went by Shelley, from West Virginia, so not too far away. The West West Virginia University is kind of a, they kind of have a big rivalry, I guess, with where we're from, <laughs> but they're the Mountaineers, and it's a big college, the whole state, really. It's kind of like the state of Tennessee with the UT volunteers, like the whole state is sort of the volunteers. And that's sort of how West Virginia is with their West Virginia University. And this girl, Michelle or Shelley Michael, grew up just outside of Morgantown and she graduated from high school, salutatorian. She was a straight A student. She was a cheerleader. She actually was able to get a spot on the cheer squad at West Virginia University, which I'm sure was a big deal. Um, this was in 1990 when she started started college. And so she always wanted to be a pediatric nurse. So when she graduated from college, she got a job at Ruby Memorial Hospital in the neonatal intensive care unit. And I thought this was really interesting, but I saw this report that said she made $28 an hour. And I thought that was odd for 1998 for a new grad. I I agree. I saw that and I was very shocked. (laughs) I couldn't even believe it. The report that I saw said that in today's dollars, that would be equivalent to about $44 an hour. It's hard for me to really believe that in West Virginia. Yeah, because I thought that their wage index would be lower than ours. Yeah. So I I don't know. I'm blown (laughs) away by that. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that was a mistake. 
but they stated it as as fact, and they even talked about that in today's dollars it would be forty four dollars an hour, and I was just like, wow, that's amazing. It was just a bachelor degree that was not. She hadn't gotten her master's yet, so it wasn't like she was working at that level. But that that was what was was stated. Who knows whether that's true or not? So Shelley was a little bit of a personality. <laughs> so she, her being a cheerleader, when she got, started working on the floor at the hospital, she would kind of go around doing her cheer moves. Is it, I mean, that kind of strikes me as odd. Can you imagine somebody like doing a big kick, like putting their, their leg all the way up to their ear at, on the floor? Um, no, I cannot imagine that. Um, that seems <laughs> a little bit extra, in my opinion. I can definitely say that I've worked with people of her personality, people mm-hmm. that, you know, they they want that attention. They're going to walk around and do things like that. But that is, I don't know why you would want to walk around and do kicks like in the air. Right. She wanted everybody to know she was a cheerleader and she she could do that, I guess. And, I guess. And I'd she, be afraid I'd blow out my scrubs. I, know. I guess she thought she was cute. I don't know. But I think from some of the people that worked with her, maybe didn't think it was real cute. They kind of thought she was a little annoying in the way she was bouncing around and, and and the way she acted. One of those people was a respiratory therapist, Stephanie Estelle. She worked with Shelley, but she was also the wife of another respiratory therapist, Jimmy Michael. And there's a reason that they have the same last name. Dun, dun, dun. I know. So Stephanie, yeah, she was kind of annoyed by her, but it seemed like Jimmy Michael, this other respiratory therapist, was was pretty impressed by her cheerleader moves. He kind of was, I saw um, one of the stories where I was reading about him said that he was sort of a, kind of obsessed with cheerleaders. Not, maybe not obsessed, but it was sort of his dream to date a cheerleader. He was sort of always kind of struggled with his weight. And so he was sort of like fixated on thin cheerleader, pretty type girls and this was according to friends of his that he would you know be watching cheerleading cheerleader competitions and things like that on television so i guess when he saw shelly acting like this at the hospital maybe that kind of triggered that thing in him that that likes cheerleaders and the two of them sort of hit it off and she's married and has two kids to a man named rob angus and then jimmy is married to stephanie the respiratory therapist that wasn't crazy about Shelly. <laughs> and they have two children also. But according to Shelly, both of them were having trouble with their marriage. So I guess started talking to each other about their marriage trouble, maybe. That's not, I would not recommend that as marriage therapy to be going no. to other people. who <laughs> Don't go to somebody who's the opposite sex, who's also having trouble in their marriage and talk about your marriage problems. That's probably not a good idea. Yeah, that will just lead to... Bad situations. It's, I mean, I understand people say, you know, misery loves company. And so if yeah. you're in a bad spot in your marriage and somebody else is, you know, you can kind of commiserate about that. But usually mm-hmm. that doesn't end up helping either of your marriages. No. And I think they probably knew that. I think they were probably both getting something out of this and were, you know, had a, a mutual attraction, probably used their quote, problems in their marriage as an excuse, you know, to run to to each other. (laughs) Right. To seek out somebody else. Right. And does it ever say what his role is? Like we know Shelly or we know Shelly's a nurse. Mm -hmm. 
and Jimmy's the respiratory therapist, and then Stephanie was. Okay, so Jimmy and Stephanie were both respiratory therapists. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so they actually, each of them did end up divorcing their spouse. So Shelly got a divorce from Rob, Jimmy got a divorce from Stephanie, and then the two of them, like eight months later, end up engaged. It was just a complete coincidence. (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) So Jimmy's parents, they were kind of impressed with Shelly. They they liked her. They said that she was more outgoing than Stephanie was. So they they liked her. They thought she was nice. They liked her personality. They did say she was kind of a perfectionist, but she was she was more worried about looking perfect. She wanted everybody to see the perfect model family. You know, so I I guess maybe she was more obsessed with looking perfect than she was with being perfect. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to give the illusion that she had all of her stuff in order. That she had the perfect marriage, the perfect kids, the perfect job. Mm -hmm. Everything was just all about all about appearances. Right. And that she was living the American dream. Right. And then Jimmy, he did work at the hospital as a respiratory therapist, but he started a medical supply business and he still worked part time at the hospital when he could. But he really focused a lot of his attention on this medical supply business and he also coached football and then Shelly coached the cheerleaders so that was their new life after they kind of moved on from their previous marriages so the kids on November 28th 2005 is kind of when this all this whole story kind of went down the kids were at their respective ex Jimmy and Shelly's ex ex spouse's house okay so kids are out of the home and Shelly said, this is according to Shelly, that Jimmy was asleep. He had gone to bed early. He was still asleep when she left. She kissed him goodbye and, and went on to work. She had to be there around 6, 6.15. They, they lived just like a few minutes, like four or five minutes from the hospital. And she says that a few hours later, around 10.30, she got, got a phone call and someone was telling her that her house was on fire. Now, if you listen to people who were at work when this happened, they thought she acted a little odd because she didn't really have any emotion. She, by this time, she was a nurse practitioner. She actually had gone back and gotten her master's degree. So the people who were there and sort of witnessed her, what, all, everything that was going on, said that she, she said, oh, I've got to go. My house is on fire. But there wasn't the reaction that you would expect somebody to have. Not that. You know, everybody, I always say this because it's, it really is true. You don't know how you're going to react until you're put in a situation. But for someone to just be sort of casual about it, and then she didn't even leave right away. She went back to her office, made some phone calls, and then they saw her leaving later. It was just sort of, they, they it struck them as weird. It's very odd. Yeah. And I would think it would be also odd for somebody who has, previously been described as, you know, this very outgoing personality, you know, doing kicks and jumps and whatever in the hallways of work. And then to just be like, oh, my house is on fire. You know, you would expect somebody with that personality to be screaming, oh, my gosh, my house is on fire. And, you know, grabbing purse, grabbing keys, sprinting out of there. Yeah, it's not like that's, yeah, because her normal personality is this very high-strung, emotional-type person, all of a sudden, everything's just sort of low-key, not not showing any emotion. It doesn't really go along with how you would expect her to react. Right. 
So she gets back to, she goes to the house. She says it is on fire. She's, she said there's firemen everywhere. She's yelling, where is Jimmy? She's, they were just saying, we don't know. We can't find him. She, the car was apparently in the garage. So when she saw the car was in the garage, she, she said she panicked, you know, like he's in the house, that sort of thing. And at first, you know, the firefighters, investigators, at first, they're just thinking, okay, this is a house fire. There's someone that was caught in the house. They were asleep, you know. So that's an unfortunate, tragic, horrible accident. That was kind of the first impression. Then they see, well, they, they walk in and his. they can tell the, the fire obviously started at the bed. He was His body is on the bed. He's laying down. On his back, they said he, they could barely recognize that there was even a body there. But when they did sort of see the outline of his body, they could tell he was laying on his back as if he was sleeping, not really in the position of somebody you would think that was, that all of a sudden a fire broke out. You would expect them to be moving around or so, in some way. Right. Not laying just completely still in this perfect position. You would expect them to be maybe like, I don't know, hanging off the side of the bed or arms yeah. and legs kind of everywhere. Had made some Maybe attempt. the bed looking, you know, the sheets rumpled, something. Right. It just, but he was just perfectly laying there. They also thought Shelley was acting odd. All of the friends and family that were coming to the scene were obviously upset. And she was not acting like someone who was grieving over losing her husband. One person said that, you know, people are like, what can I do? Is there anything I can do for you? She responded by saying, yeah, or that when they said, is there anything you need? And she said, a new husband. Yeah. <laughs> Who would say that? I don't know. And even, I just, I can't imagine that coming out of somebody's mouth. Even me, I am very sarcastic all the time. That's my first language. But I couldn't even see myself saying that in that situation. Yeah, in that situation. And then I think sometimes I wonder what someone is thinking who would do something like this if she was responsible for his death and therefore just completely callous and just uncaring, just really didn't care. You would think she would at least be trying to act like she cared. Right. She would at least be putting on a show. Like if you've taken the time to plan this out and think about all the things that go into this detail of setting it all up, getting everything Mm -hmm. ready. You know, us nurses were very, very detailed and task-oriented. So I would Mm -hmm. think that practicing your shock and realization and your sorrow would be part of that plan and that detail that you would think about, okay, what what can I say when people ask me or what's my storyline going to be? I would think that people would put more effort into how they fake mm-hmm. their shock and sadness after these events occurred. Yeah. And I guess it's just really hard for me to imagine anyone saying that, that genuinely loved and cared about their husband and was truly shocked at what happened. It's, it almost sounds like someone who is not just completely callous, like no heart whatsoever, just completely. It's like she doesn't even know what someone would say who has a heart and has feelings, you know, and cares about anyone other than herself. Yeah, I agree. It's as if she doesn't even know what a normal person's reaction should be. So they did do an autopsy, and it did reveal that 
there was no soot in his airway. And of course, we've, got, we've heard enough of these stories to know that that means he wasn't alive when the fire was started because he didn't he wasn't breathing. He didn't breathe in any smoke. So then weeks later, the toxicology results showed the drug rocaronium in the system. We were just talking about vecaronium. It's a basically a, a different type of the same sort of drug that is a paralytic, a muscular paralytic. So it's used for the same thing. Another thing that I saw said that rocaronium is used a lot for pediatric patients because it works faster for whatever reason. So it's used when you're intubating patients because it just helps them to be completely still so they're not fighting the tube. But then you also have to have a way to help them breathe. And the reason that they looked for that drug in the first place, it's not a drug that that's normally going to probably show up on a toxicology report, like a typical list of drugs that you're going to look for, because who would think somebody would use rocaronium or vecaronium or anything like that? And we did another story about a nurse who used propofol, and that's also not a drug that's not going to come up on a typical list because most people don't even have access to that sort of thing. But someone made a anonymous call to the police and said, you might want to look for this drug because they knew that where she worked at the hospital on the floor where she worked, she would have, she would have access to it. It apparently is just sitting out available for anyone, which is That's crazy, weird. unbelievable. But some anonymous person was clearly thinking that she, she had something to do with this and they were thinking, hmm, and they told the police, look for this drug. And so that's why they were looking for that in the toxicology report. And it did show that that drug was in his system. So, of course, they're they're looking at her pretty strongly right away. And they're trying to think about motives. So they're looking into their marriage. And they find out, guess what? She was having an affair. Surprise so again. I know. <laughs> there's a man named Bobby Teets who worked for her husband. And they discover they find some footage of the two of them at a hotel and they can they can tell by the footage that because they they only got one hotel room it was supposedly a business trip but they only got one hotel room <laughs> so he admitted they they approached him he admitted it admitted to it they kind of looked into him he had an alibi airtight so you know he was making deliveries and he was at the warehouse. They had people everywhere putting him there. So he was nowhere. He was There was no way he was involved in this death. So they excluded him. They did look at Jimmy's ex-wife, Stephanie, because there was some contention there. It was kind of an ugly divorce. She also had an alibi. So that leaves Shelly, who's acting strange, who has access to rocaronium who just lives minutes from the hospital, she did have an alibi. She had been at work when the fire was discovered. So, I mean, if you think about it, that's a pretty good alibi. I mean, if you're at work and this, when it happened, well, how could she possibly have done that? How could she have, if she's at work when they, when the fire is discovered? Right. But then they found, I'm not sure how they found out that she had, I don't know if a coworker or somebody reported, hey, she did leave for a little bit. And they checked the security footage of the hospital and saw her get in her car and leave and then saw her return. And mm-hmm. it was, a, I think, about 17 minutes. 
Yep. And then there was also another neighbor of hers who I think was another respiratory therapist. Maybe not, yeah. but at least worked at that hospital and knew who she was. Put her at that house at about 820, which is roughly two hours before she got the call about the fire. Yeah. So her, her co-workers said that at some point she said, oh, I've got to run out to my car. I left my pager out there. And they said they thought it was odd because she never used her pager. So they did. It struck them as sort of a, a weird, like, why would you care to run all the way back out to your, I mean, do you ever want to go back out to your car from the hospital? No. If you forget something. It's the last thing no. I want to do. Oh, I've left my badge out in my car before and it was freezing cold and I, I, you have to have it to do blood sugars. And I was just like, no, I don't want to do it. But no, nobody would go out there if you didn't absolutely have to. So she goes all the way out to her car for this pager that, that she's she was, never used before, that she's never used before, moved her car and then pulled back into a different parking spot 17 minutes later. So she says that she didn't leave the grounds. But they're like, well, where were you for 17 minutes? She said at some point she was like, well, this woman, I swear with her and her lies, she was like, I was driving around the parking parking garage looking for a parking spot. And actually, I was like, well, okay, I, I kind of, I mean, when I think about looking for a parking spot in the middle of the day where I work, it is almost impossible. It can be so frustrating if you get there in the middle of the day, like for an ACLS class or something. It is so crazy. I'm like. There's nowhere to park. So part of me was like, that's actually a pretty good excuse. It is. It is. But why would she have needed to move? She already had a yeah. parking spot. So right. why was she looking for a, a new one? Yeah. That and especially that time of the day, that. you're not going to find a better parking space than what you probably already got at 6 a.m. That's No. The and why didn't they parking. see her? <laughs> right. That's You're not going to get a better parking spot. And why would they not have seen her on surveillance driving around? You right. Know, that. that Mm-mm. No, she just left and then she returned. And that neighbor that saw her, he worked with her. He saw her look right at him and then she looked away because he, he said he thought, oh, well, she's probably just in one of her moods. <laughs> she was kind of a moody kind of person. So she can't really get away from that. And she finally admitted, okay, yeah, well, I, I did leave for, I just had to run an errand real fast. So... The problem, though, is it was a full two hours before the fire was discovered. So there, I mean, she got back to the the hospital at 828. So there is that issue as far as the fire goes. That's a little, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they wouldn't discover that for two hours later. So if she was somehow setting the fire, there's no, that doesn't really add up yet. Right. And I don't know anything about fires. So, Mm -hmm. but that did strike me. That was one of the first kind of notes I made was, well, if she left, why would would they not have caught the fire sooner? But yeah. then again, I have ignorance when it comes to those things. So there could be a way to start a fire that takes, you know, several hours before it burns big enough for anyone else to notice it. Yeah. And that's kind of what they said, that if the windows and doors to the bedroom were closed, so the... There wasn't enough oxygen in the room to, I guess, make the fire get completely engulfed, then it could burn slower. So maybe sort of smoldering over that two-hour period. And then at some point when it finally burns through something or gets 
somehow comes and burns into something else that becomes fuel is what they were what the prosecutors were saying. So they did charge her with first degree murder and arson on March 10th, 2006. And what they said that they believed happened is that she lifted a vial of rockaronium from the hospital, injected him probably while he was asleep that night or that morning. And then around six o'clock, she left as usual. And then at some point, you know, a couple of hours later, trying to very secretly slip it, slip home, set the house on fire and then go back to work, hoping that she that no one's going to notice. And she has this alibi of while I was at work all day. Mm-hmm. I think so, she would have been better off if she had just went to her car and not said, oh, I'm going to get my pager. Right. Because then she could have just shut her door and people would have thought, oh, she's just in there working in her office with the door closed and. People saw her yeah. come in. Right. So she probably yeah, could have. She, she made too much of an issue out of that. And right. That, and doing something that just really probably stood out to people and they remembered. And then she's on the surveillance camera going to her car. You know, I these, these people, I don't know. To me, that seems like something you would think of, but I, maybe not. Yeah, there's some pretty intelligent people that are in the medical field that make some really dumb mistakes when they're committing yeah. these crimes. I know this woman has a master's degree in nursing. I don't I don't get it. But they say that he Jimmy had recently taken out a half a million dollar life insurance policy. They both had actually taken out life insurance policies and it was him that that had done it. But Shelley was sort of trying to point the finger back at Stephanie, the ex-wife. But Stephanie had an alibi. She was at home with a new baby and that was they were able to prove that she was at home and did not leave. Right. And I understand that maybe she wanted to get some revenge. There was probably some hard feelings. You know, she was probably, you know, embarrassed that she worked at this place and her marriage fell apart. And then mm-hmm. her ex-husband started dating this young preppy cheerleader. I'm sure there's feelings of resentment there. Not only that, you know, you're, you've lost your marriage, but that you were embarrassed in front of your coworkers and at your job, but she didn't stand to benefit from the insurance policy. So she'd obviously moved on. She was at home with her new baby. So while revenge is a motive, it wasn't really strong enough, in my opinion, in this case for her to be a suspect. Right. And, and it, it's not unheard of for an ex spouse or an ex boyfriend or girlfriend to just stay obsessed, you know, with a, with someone, but it, there was no sign whatsoever that anything like that was going on. It, she seemed to be perfectly content and happy in her new, her new marriage. And with, like you said, she, she'd had a new baby and that just, that didn't make any sense. And there was no, no evidence whatsoever that anything like that could have taken place. That her defense team is clearly just trying to come up with something, you know, they have to They have to defend her in some way. They said, well, the fire must have started just right before it was found. And someone found the fire, saw saw the the windows blow out of the house, of the bedroom around 1030. That's when the fire must have started right before that. She She clearly was back at the hospital by 828. Therefore, she couldn't have done it. But prosecutors are saying, no, it could have smoldered for two hours before bursting into to flames. 
and they actually called the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and Explosives, and they built six models of the Michael's bedroom, exact replicas, the exact mattress, the exact carpet, everything, the paint, and they set them on fire. And in the test, the bedroom erupts into flames after smoldering for two hours and 12 minutes in one of the tests. Now, the defense says, well, that's you, you had several failed attempts before you were able to produce that result. But what the prosecution is saying is that doesn't matter. The fact is that it's possible. Right. They just had to prove that it was possible to happen. Right. It, it, it doesn't matter that it took them that many chances. The point is, you can set a fire in this exact circumstance and it can smolder for two hours and 12 minutes and then actually erupt into flames after sitting there for that long. And that's all they needed to do was to prove that it could have happened that way, that she could have set the fire at 8, you know, 8.15, 8.20, went back to work, and then it sat there and smoldered because of the lack of oxygen, and then eventually, two hours later, actually engulfed the whole room into flames. And what they think is the bed, I want to say that they think that it melted through the floor, and then bringing in the oxygen from the from below is what actually fed that fire and caused it to erupt and the windows to to bust out. Yeah. And it said that the house was actually salvageable, that really the only thing that was destroyed was the bedroom. The bedroom. I know. That was it. really weird. She clearly thought that this whole house was going to be completely destroyed because there was a cap from a syringe under the bed and a syringe in the sink in the kitchen. So she thought all that um, was going to be burned up. I guess so. And she may have thought, you know, that he would be burned up so badly that nobody would ever check to see was he dead before the fire started. Yeah. I guess I guess that's what she's thinking, you know, this if he if if the whole house burns down, then nobody's ever going to question whether or not they're just going to assume. She kept saying that she's pretty sure she left an iron on. She said, well, I'm I'm pretty sure I left an iron on, and I think that's how the fire started. And some of the firefighters that were talking about the case and investigating, they were like, that's not even possible. There's no way that that an iron would have started this fire. It clear There was clearly accelerant. So what, what the prosecution thinks most likely happened, you know, there's always a little element of truth in, in some of these stories. So they think probably what happened, she injected him with the rocaronium. He died. What they said is it takes around, I want to say they said 13 to 16 minutes, something like that, for someone to actually suffocate after being injected with this medicine. He's a respiratory therapist, so he he probably knew what was going on. And then once he did die, they think that she probably left the iron on that morning and then went to work at 6 thinking that the iron would set the bed on fire and it would then the whole house would would be engulfed in flames. She would be at work the whole time. But when eight o'clock rolled around and it still hadn't caught on fire, she started worrying, ran home when she saw that it it had not caught on fire. She, you know, plan B, doused him with some kind of accelerant, set him on fire fire, and then ran back to to work. Mm -hmm. And they, I think they even tried to say that he did this 
that I think her defense tried to say that he killed himself, you know, committed suicide and made it look like a murder so that that way they would get the life insurance money. But that doesn't so terrible to I just think it's awful when they do this. Yes. To to victims. It's horrible. Right. Because he can't. You know, he can't speak for himself. And so you're making this statement about him and he can't defend himself. But and his family has to hear this and they they want to defend him. You know, and they're, they're like, they, they know he would never he would never have done this. And it's just it's got to be hard for them to have to listen to this defense attorney mm-hmm. suggest that it's, that it's possible when everybody knows what happened. Right. Right. And the order of that, too, was. The order I was I was trying to play that on my head. I was like, well, then he would have had to. I guess he would have had to start the fire, but then how would yeah. hey, he wouldn't have been able to give to give himself the rockeronium, and especially if they found the needle in the it was the kitchen sink you said, right? And then travel himself to the bedroom. I mean, that's logistically that's not going to work. There's so. no possible way that that. That that happened that way, and it, and I think that they knew that, that, but the defense attorney knew that it was just he was just whatever he could say to. Yeah, they're just lobbing, <laughs> lobbing right. stuff out there to see if something will stick. What's really interesting, to, I found really interesting. Apparently, there is a journal out there on the internet from one of the jurors on this case, and that juror says that from the at the beginning of this of the the trial. The jury was not convinced that she was guilty, which is interesting because this is a small town where everybody knows everybody. Now, they did, I think, have to go outside of this town. But still, you would think this was a it was a high profile case. You would think that people would at least go into it kind of go being pretty suspicious. But they started out really kind of giving her the benefit of the doubt and really not convinced that she had done it. And she really hung her own. She she hung herself with this, with their with the defense and with her behavior and with just all of the her excuses and her lies. She really did it to herself. Yeah, and she had a very charming personality, so I can see how she probably came into the courtroom. She probably you know made sure her appearance was perfect and. She probably sat there, you know, very stoic and just charmed the jurors. Right. So, yeah, maybe they wanted to be sympathetic when from the beginning. But it's just one of those cases that once you start piling on all this evidence, there's no way that even I, you know, whenever Q and I do these stories together, Q, usually very early on, he's always guilty. He always thinks they're guilty. He's like, ah, you're guilty. And, and I'm usually trying to be like, you know, walk the kind of walk the fence and, and, and give people the benefit of the doubt. And he's like, oh, come on, Tina. And I can't even do that in this one. It's just so ridiculous. There's just so much evidence um, against her. And of course, after eight days of testimony, the judge gave it over to the jury. It took them a day and a half and they reached a unanimous verdict of guilty. And they did this thing called, they have this in West Virginia. They do not have the death penalty in West Virginia. So they have what's called a recommendation of mercy that they can give with a guilty verdict for, I guess, for a life 
Life I guess for sentence. life sentence, yeah. So if they say guilty with a recommendation of mercy, that means that in twenty years she can be, she can get parole. She can be eligible for parole, right? And I don't, I don't think her fam, I don't think his family was was real happy about that, but they were happy about the guilty verdict. At least there's some justice there. They also found her guilty on the arson charge, and if I'm not mistaken, I think I saw where she has to serve her sentence for the arson charge, which I think is 20 years, consecutively. So after she completes her sentence for the homicide charge. So she will be eligible for parole in 2027. She'll be 55. But if I'm not mistaken, I think the way I thought I understood that was that she then has to serve that other even if she got parole, she wouldn't be able to get out because she has to serve that other sentence. Right, for know. the arson. Yeah, I think that's how that works. She was stunned and emotionless, but that kind of goes along with the way she's been through this whole thing. She still says she was innocent. She stood up in court and and said, "I didn't, you know, I didn't do this," and and, and all of that. Made, you know, kind of made a statement. And her children are living with her ex husband. Mm-hmm. He will not let them visit their mother in prison, and she did petition to appeal, and it was denied in the fall of 2008, uh, 2008, 2008. Mm-hmm. and I guess that's that's her story. It's really sad. It is. You know, somebody that has their, their whole life ahead of them. I mean, this happened mm-hmm. in 1998, and to lose your children, you know, I mean, she doesn't get to see her kids. She's given up her career. You know, she's taken, she's altered so many other people's lives. She's altered the lives of the husband that she murdered and his parents and his children. You know, it's, it's not just her that's affected by this. Just not even thinking. So many of these stories, this happens where there's one spouse that's killing another spouse. And it always just baffles me that one spouse could kill another when they have children, and so they're killing the father or the mother of their own children, and I just, I just don't understand it. It's, it's so narcissistic. Like she, you can tell, she obviously, her world is all about her. She doesn't have the ability to love anyone, not even her own children, because if she did, she could never have done. She could never have done that to her children, you know, killing their father. It's so sad. Right. It's very sad. So I guess we'll talk about our good nurse, which this is a neat story. I I like to read novels about that sort of centered around the Holocaust, um, like The Book Thief and The Boy in the Striped Pajamas and, you know, books like that, that are just, they're, they're novels, but they're kind of based, you know, around the Holocaust. So this story is about a Jewish nurse who spied on the Nazis and how she goes around giving these talks, which I I think it's really neat. She's a Jewish French spy who went behind Nazi lines and tells about her wartime experiences in an, in this address that she she was giving. So she goes around do, doing these talks. She's when she was in 1944, she was a 24-year-old nurse. She spoke fluent German, which I think is amazing. She was French, and she spoke fluent German. That can't be any—I know that's not an easy language. I had a German exchange student that lived with us for years. So I know it's not an easy language. Yeah, I think that would be difficult to kind of 
convert and to, to speak it so fluently. Yeah. She was recruited by intelligence services and she traveled throughout Germany. She's this article is from the Daily Courier in Kelowna, and this is in Canada. I'm probably mispronouncing that. I just always assume I am because I don't know. But it was from July the 18th of this year. So this just happened. She's 99 years old now. And so she's at 99. She's traveling the world and (laughs) traveling the world and doing speeches and urging people to do what they can to stand up to tyranny and terror. Is that not amazing that she's still, I mean, she has every right in the world to just relax and, (laughs) you know, yeah, she do whatever is, she wants to. She is still out there just taking life, you know, just charging forward to do whatever she can. She's going to just right up to the very end. She's going to keep doing whatever she can to change the world and make it a better place. I think that's amazing. She's been doing this her whole life. And she's. it says that there's you know teenagers and elderly alike. Everyone loves to listen to her stories. And it kind of helps people to reevaluate how re- we react to the challenges that we all face and our personal challenges, family, global, every, all sorts of different challenges, political. And it says people walk away educated, inspired, and motivated to lead better lives and make sacrifices for the benefit of goodness. And it says after the war, she received France's highest military award, which is the Legion of Honor. And, um, so I guess that's, I mean, that's it. It's kind of a, a really neat story. Her name is Martha Cohen. And I guess that's how you pronounce that. It's spelled M-A-R-T-H-E. Yeah. I would I would think it would be Martha, Martha as well. Yeah. But I she's truly an inspiration. She really is. That's amazing. I love her energy. I love her commitment. And just she's obviously just committed to keep keeping up her work until she can't do it anymore, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. So that's our Goodner story. If you guys want to go look her up, that was on the KalaunaDailyCourier.ca. It's a Canadian website. And her name is Martha Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. And you guys should go look her up. She's a cute little, it's a nice little picture. I shouldn't say cute because I read somewhere that that is condescending and you're not supposed to call, you shouldn't call patients cute. And it's hard. It's really hard to change that because sometimes you know when you're when you have a an older patient it's it's sort of endearing and you just find things just adorable and just it seems cute and it's hard not to say that it's cute you know that it we're not apparently we're not supposed to it's not it's not good for them or patients when we treat them like they're you know a child i guess you know, kind of like, oh, you're so cute, the way we would talk to a three-year-old or a four-year-old. And I guess I could see that. Yeah, I can too. But it is hard being from the South. Yeah. Uh, I am one of those people that, you know, honey, baby, doll, yeah. darling, I can't. <laughs> I have to catch myself all the time. You know, It's hard. It's really hard. I'm working on it, though. I'm really working on it. Every time I hear myself say that, I'm just like, oh, don't do it. I don't want to offend someone i don't want to make them feel uncomfortable or and i certainly don't want to be condescending to them or make them feel like they're not a a person anymore you know i don't want to make them feel as though they're not relevant or somehow like they've converted back into their childhood or something like that like they're not okay i can't have a normal conversation with them right so 
Anyway, so that is our our good nurse story. So I guess I guess this is it. I usually wrap it up by letting you guys know to go to Instagram or Facebook. Instagram it's good nurse bad nurse and Facebook it's GNBN podcast. And you can go to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. Mark always listens to this. He listens to the very end to find out if I said it. And then a couple of episodes ago, I said goodnursebadnursepodcast.com. And he's like, you said the wrong thing. I was like, oh, my goodness. He is like the worst critic ever. Of ever. He watches everything I say. So anyway, you guys send me some feedback. Send me emails. I love getting them. And I guess we'll remind everybody also that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. (laughs) 